WGN. John Williams on the Wintrust Business Lunch with the CEO and founder of LaSalle Network, Tom Gimbel. Is today Employee Appreciation Day? No, that's Friday, right, Tom? I think, I think we live in a world now where employees want to be appreciated every day. Yeah, well, um, that's not a bad thing. They should be, right? Yes, as long as I think it's, it's I, I think what's gotten lost in this whole social media world and and enablement and, and everything else is is it really should be mutual appreciation. <laughs> is that is that the employees they do good work? Hopefully, they do good work. They get compensated. Companies invest in them, train them, develop a career path, and and employers employ people and they do good work and they try to help their clients and they create a healthy environment and and it's it's like I think it's one of those things that um, I've been both an employee and I've been in management and a business owner or CEO is that is that I think that that if we if we create a, a world where you know, have you ever seen Whiplash, the movie Whiplash, John? Yeah. About the drummer. There's a line in there. Yeah, about the drummer. There's a line in there. And, and I'm not saying that the, the theme of being abusive to a student is right. It's not. But there's a theme that, 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 that J.K. Simmons says, or J.J. Simmons says, the, the two most damning words in the English language are good job is that if we always acknowledge and reward every little thing that everybody does, people begin to think they're better than they are, and they don't push and drive for more. This is your theme for Employee Appreciation Day? This sounds like Employee Kick Them in the Ass Day. No, 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 no. But let me tell you, if you appreciate your employees and you don't challenge them to be better, you're a destructive leader. You're the parent that rewards your kids with thousand dollar gym shoes for getting an A instead of telling them that they did, that they, that that's what's expected and they should get an A again. If we always reward the basic, we're not being a good employer, right? We've got challenge. Hey, John, guess what? You came in in the top half of the ratings. Great work, (laughs) right? Everybody gets a trophy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. I think that employee appreciation day is saying, we value you so much, we want to pay you more money next year. And here's what you have to do to earn it. Employee Appreciation Day is saying, we want to give you more opportunity to give back to the community. Here's what you and we as a company have to do to make that happen. But to say for Employee Appreciation Day, let's have a party and just say we love you for no other reason than doing it, we should be doing that every day. The employer employs you. The employee shows up. It's the social contract that we're in this together. And the employees don't come to work and throw a parade for the bosses and say, we appreciate you, because it doesn't go upwards. And I'm not saying it should. What I'm saying is, is that we have to challenge one another to be better. Well, I think we don't say... Listen, I, I, I think you're saying some very smart and true things there, but I think the environment in which that takes place, where the employees feel so uh, appreciated uh, and appreciative, uh, is uh, is an environment that the employer creates, right? So, Correct. well, no, yes and no, because here's what happens: is this is like the this is like CPS is a great example of this. Just because they, they say we're a place of learning doesn't make it great. If the students come there and they're disruptive, 
The teachers can't teach the good people. If the, if the school employs teachers who, who aren't all committed, then it doesn't make a difference what the principal or the superintendent says. The, the great place to work in appreciating one another is communal. And I think this gets lost and people blame. I'm not happy, so it's the company's fault. You know what? I call BS on that. And I think it's time that, that everybody realizes that we're in this together. And we all we can't point fingers anymore without, without three fingers pointing back at us. And that is a great expression, and I think we have to value it. And I have to say that a company – listen to what employees don't want. I can guarantee this, John. They don't want to work at a place that treats them badly every other day but Employee Appreciation Day. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think that employees... Right? I'd rather celebrate Cinco de Mayo. I think that employees take for granted. If you're working at a company that is paying your insurance and your 401k contributions and a salary and creating a positive work environment and enabling you the life you have, and if you like your work and you're doing, you know, all of those things that we aspire to, which most of us probably have a, a, a good measure of, maybe the employees don't appreciate enough the owners, the managers, the supervisors that create that world in which they live. I'll meet you there for sure. I'll, I'll take that today, John. I feel like that's a win in our relationship. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I also think this, is that we don't know what we don't know. And I think we should live in a world of a little bit more transparency. And that's always been focused on the financials of a company. But I also think it's about time allocation, is that most employees don't think that their managers are working on the weekend or on Sunday nights, yeah. planning the week for them and doing things for them. And I just think that there's a lot of work that goes into providing a great culture and it's a two way street. That's all. John Williams. I came from a company that had a motto of continuous improvement. They showed that no matter how well you did, it wasn't good enough. See, that's the corner that you paint yourself in with this. Hey, uh, we're going to create a culture where we value your good work, but we're going to push you. And at some point, I think that was how we got off on this. If it's Employee Appreciation Day, how about a cake and some coffee at lunchtime? You're, are you going to do anything like that on Friday, Tom? Are you going to do anything different? No, I think we do. Number one, uh, Friday's an optional workday, John. So people, <laughs> the majority of the people work remotely on Friday. Uh, so we can't even do things for them in the office anymore if we if we choose to. What I will say is, is, as you know, we do a ton of employee appreciation. I do know that. So it, it, it allows me to take a hard line stance on some of this because I know what we do for our people and I know what our people do for us. And I firmly believe that you've got to create a culture like that. And ours didn't start during COVID. Ours started 20 years ago. According and so to those the, movie, are the those, Go ahead, finish that thought, Tom. Yeah, so I think you, you go through the challenges. And I think the concept of, you know, you, 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 you do this and then they, they want more. It's not good enough. I don't believe that's the case. I think they're bad at communicating. You achieve something great and they want you to achieve something greater in the future. It's called growth and challenging. If you don't grow, they can't hire more people. They can't promote you. You can't pay people more money on the same revenue and same profits that you had or else the company loses money. And companies just do a bad job at explaining that to people. So I'm just quoting you from the movie Whiplash. The two worst words you can say as an employer are good job. Reminds me of a review of a book I was reading, and they quoted the author who said, the two saddest words in the English language are what party? 
but good job is maybe something that we <laughs> throw around. Let's go watch. Let's go watch City Slickers and talk about the best and the worst day of Bruno Kirby's life. It was the same day. All right, nice to hear you, Tom. As always, very uh, thought provoking. We appreciate you joining us. Be well and stay healthy, John. Let's uh, talk now with Philip Weiss, the president of Cyfarth at Work. Hi, Philip. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. I think our listeners are already picking up on what I said you would be talking about, and that is some of these new, maybe popular phrases in employment. It's not just the great resignation and quiet quitting, but it's what now? Yeah, it's a, it's a whole crop of new phenomenon and new buzzword-type terms that really reflect this continued phase we're in with employee discontentment, disenchantment, employees checking out or looking for ways to blow off steam. And uh, there's two or three. It's only late February. We've heard two or three of these trending terms already. One of them, John, is uh, what we've uh, coined and our clients have coined scattershot job seeking. And scattershot job seeking amounts to employees being disgruntled and then mass applying for any and every job they think will give them a better opportunity. So it's not simply looking for your next step on the career ladder. It is applying with the idea that I just got to get the heck out of here. The results, as you can imagine, of doing this in a willy-nilly fashion are, on the one hand, many employees are applying for jobs for which they're simply unqualified or unprepared, and they're not using the kind of care and attention to detail that you would expect. Are people also getting accepted for those jobs and then saying, ah, you know, never mind? Uh, on rare occasion. We saw a little bit more of that last year, John, because there was just such a need to bring people on board yeah. that employers said, look, it, we'll do what we can and what we need to to train these people up. But now they're really looking for more direct experience or an understanding, at least, of what the job requires. The problem with doing this in a haphazard fashion is you kind of evidence neither of those facts, and you really shoot yourself in the leg. In one case, one candidate uh, that we spoke to later who, who never was able to leave his job, as you'll see, and you'll see why, he was looking for design work, and he sent out so many resumes that he kept changing so rapidly in hopes of matching particular jobs that his autocorrect on his resume, John, changed his term, which was graphic art novels, which he had produced, to graphic adult navels. And that appeared on over 200 resumes. And companies that probably will not look at this guy seriously in the foreseeable future had to read those resumes. Except for the company that is, in fact, looking for an adult navalist. Um, you know what? I, I, I did not recommend that to him. I don't know that I should have. But frankly, you, you may have found his next career spot if that's a resume that gets him the job. What's minimal Mondays and forget about it Fridays? I think I know, but talk about that. Yeah, so this is kind of a more targeted and perhaps a little bit more diabolically clever version of quiet quitting. Because what it does is, and what it's meant for employees uh, feeling disenchanted, is they really specifically find the most creative way to avoid any and all work on Monday and the Friday. And because, as you know, John, that's often a work-from-home day, it makes the opportunities even easier. But whether you look at people at home or at work, there's a lot of ways, or at the office, a lot of ways to accomplish it. 
employees add ghost meetings to their communal calendar. Uh, They pre-schedule emails to automatically send to the boss during their MIA time, particularly when the boss is also in a meeting, so he or she won't respond right away. And they'll obviously take the extra long coffee breaks, uh, but bring back that one donut for the boss's assistant, who they hope will cover for them if they're gone too long. So a lot of really creative ways, sadly, to avoid the work on the first and last day of the week. Well, I don't mean to disparage any of you that are working hard out there, but my guess is a lot of that happens on Fridays, that people are just putting in a half a day. And I don't know if that means they quit at noon or don't start till noon, but of the eight hours, they're putting about four hours of work and they're going for a long walk and maybe a run to the grocery store. I don't even know if I care as long as they get the job done, but I I wonder if that's 50% of the workforce that's working from home. Yeah, you raise a great point. And my view of this, and this is really anecdotal, John, a lot of employers have come to something of the same conclusion as you have. That's why they make Friday a little bit of a uh, sort of a, a, a downshift day. That's why they let people work from home. That's why it's a casual attire day. They know that they are fighting an uphill battle. They expect the work to be done. It may not be done Friday afternoon, and they shouldn't always count on that. Frankly, though, in some cases, it's a requirement. Clients expect product or service, and those employers have to be really on this because they can't afford to lose those opportunities. Do you think they're doing that in China and South Korea and Vietnam, uh, India? I'm thinking of other places that manufacture things that we might be in competition with or that provide services. Is the rest of the world got this soft work landing going on? Yeah, uh, it's another really interesting question. So our global clients tell us a couple things. On the one hand, when you're dealing with uh, manufacturing or just-in-time delivery, Nothing's changed uh, in a lot of these countries, and frankly, it hasn't in the U.S. to a great extent. Uh, But when it comes to white-collar consulting, et cetera, some of the companies operating outside the U.S. can track the needs in our country, meaning they can adjust schedules based on our Friday and Monday workload. So it's not as a market there, and often it's tied to what's happening with their U.S. operations or their U.S. customers. One last minute, Tom. What is, um, or uh, Philip, what is um, Robin Hooding in the workplace now? Yeah, Robin Hooding, the man or the woman, uh, or the person at the top, is simply putting the uh, customer or client's interests above those of your own company. And that's a financial transaction that shouldn't be happening, such as people, employees in a movie theater, allowing patrons free entry or supersizing that food order without even being asked and not charging for it, or giving that customer the employee discount. It's a way of saying, I really want to kind of stick it to the company, and I can do it on a one-to-one basis with customers, give them the financial benefit. So it is actually a tantamount to theft when you look at many misdemeanor laws, and it's not a a wise career choice. I've been the beneficiary of something like that once in a while, but I've often thought it was just because... That was a nice person, not a disgruntled employee. I, I get the economics that you're talking about, but I wasn't judging their motive. Yeah. You know what? You're describing something that this is an interesting nuance. When companies encourage their employees to use their judgment to reward or encourage a customer or client's loyalty, yeah, that is a great practice and should be encouraged. It's when employees do this 
every day because they are look they have that ulterior motive <laughs> to harm the company yeah. and help the customer that we see the problems. Philip Weiss is the president of Seifarth at Work, S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H, Seifarth at Work. Always interesting, Philip. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, John. About Employee Appreciation Day, which Tom Gimble had many things to say about. Boy, John, I got to have a case of that blood pressure drink you advertise 120 Life every time Tom Gimble is on. He was passionate today. I'm not exactly sure about what. He appreciates employees, but he doesn't think that they appreciate how much he appreciates them. And sometimes they need to be pushed, I think was what he was saying. 630 said, my girlfriend works at a company that has a lot of bad employees. The employer hires these people and keeps them, even promoting them. Who's to blame, the bad employee or employer who hires and rewards them? John, I agree, says another listener, that a blanket employee appreciation day is not beneficial. 708, many Americans have taken the how little can I do and get paid for it attitude to the next level. And one more, if I hired someone to do a job and they decide to slack off because it's Monday, I would show them the door. Oh, and then a couple of others have said things like, ARG, there are studies that show that most people would appreciate recognition and thus be more more motivated because they were noticed. This is Adam Taggart. He's the CEO and founder of Wealthion at Wealthion.com. That's not why I called you, Adam, but do you have anything to say about all of that? (laughs) Uh, Well, as we may talk about in a few minutes, John, uh, I think if we end up having the type of recession that it looks like we may have this year, uh, it may make people appreciate their jobs a whole lot more. That's the that's the you know foot that falls when you know we've been speaking about a recession and be it a soft landing or what. Uh, you know, I don't think any of us really knew what does that mean or how does it affect me. I'm already paying more for eggs than I like, but if it means people lose their jobs, that's that's a possible consequence of what's going to happen, right? Absolutely, and we're coming off a couple of years where one, um, you know, people didn't feel pressured to have a job so much because there was so much stimulus and support that they were getting and relief. Um, but also, uh, the job market has been uh, very loose, right? I mean, we've we've had lots and lots of uh, job openings per applicant. And so people have developed an understandable, to a certain extent, complacency, right? Um, you can get away with doing the bare minimum. Um, in a recession, for those of us old enough to have lived through a couple, uh, all that goes away. And you're just happy to have a paycheck. Boy, that does seem like a reach, though. Are you telling me that uh, what... what what will unemployment be like if we have a, a hard landing uh, on this recession? Because right now it's 3%. Oh, I could easily see it be double or higher if we have a hard landing. And do you, and do you anticipate that? Is that your expectation? Uh, if you're asking me, do I give a hard landing a higher probability than a soft landing or a, or a no landing situation? We had that trial balloon floated about two weeks ago. Um, yes, I do. I think a hard landing is more likely. And why is that? What's happening here, Adam? Uh, well, I just think if you look at them, well, okay, so the big difference is uh, the environment we live in now. Right? We're, we're, we're living in an environment where inflation has changed the game. Um, as you said, uh, you know, expenses for everything are going up. That's crimping consumer spending, which is 90% of GDP. That has forced the central banks to uh, hike interest rates uh, further and faster than they ever have uh, in history before. So 
So we have an entirely different cost of capital world um, that is compressing company earnings. We're seeing bad guidance as a result. Um, and uh, we're seeing layoffs begin to take off, uh, and uh, it does not seem that the Fed is going to be changing course at all uh, this year unless it is forced to by something truly dire, like some sort of break in the financial system or freezing up in the credit system, and all of those things just make uh, financial conditions uh, and economic conditions worse. So uh, I honestly think it, it's, it's hard to make the bullish case at this moment that we're going to avoid a recession of some sort this year. What's bad guidance? Uh, well, you know, for example, like let's look at, uh, you know, some key marquee staple companies, right? Uh, Walmart and Home Depot uh, both gave disappointing guidance after earning uh, after their earnings calls this year. Their, their stocks got whacked. Um, you know, we're seeing that largely uh, across the board. And again, uh, at the end of the day, you know, what matters most is, is companies' actions, not what they say. And we see more and more companies across more and more industries going into the batten down the hatches phase. Uh, you know, as I said, we've seen more layoffs in the first uh, you know, month and a half of this year than we saw practically for all of last year. Um, and that process is accelerating. And again, that contagion is spreading into more and more industries. It's not just tech anymore. January was good, though. The market was off to a nice start, wasn't it? It was. Um, I kind of refer to that uh, as, a, as a false dawn. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from a lot of the experts that I interview on, on Wealthy on, you know, like you, John, I, I interview a lot of macro, a lot of economic and, and financial experts. Um, but yeah, the, the, we, we got a little bit of a reprieve. Part of that was because the markets had gotten very oversold, right? And, and nothing goes, you know, in any direction in, in, in the straight line in the markets. Things bounce around a little bit. Um, we also got some you know, encouraging data, but it was data that if you really dug into it, you didn't really have to scratch very deep before you realized the headlines uh, were far rosier than the actual data. So we had, uh, you know, blowout jobs numbers, which when you dug into them really showed that this nation's been losing full-time jobs. And it's really been a, a surfeit of, um, of part-time jobs, which is really an indication of people needing to get an extra job just to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. We had good retail sales numbers, um, but they were uh, heavily seasonally adjusted, as were the jobs numbers, and they were not inflation adjusted. And when you did the inflation adjustment, they really had gone nowhere. Um, we had a little bump up in auto sales, but that's basically after, uh, you know, six plus months of declines beforehand. And it looks like that trend has, uh, uh, has resumed again. Um, another big thing that, that gave people some hope uh, was in the housing market. Uh, mortgage rates had gone down a little bit and housing activity began to show a few signs of life. But since then, mortgage rates are now back to six and a half percent. Momentum still going higher. So, um, you know, we're seeing continued downward momentum in both sales and prices across the housing market. So, um, you know, I, I think we had a I think we had a market that was poised to just want to have some kind of good news and it got some data that it could tell a good narrative about. Um, but I think the big thing here is, you know, the markets, as they had been rallying since the beginning of the year, were trying to convince themselves that the Fed was not going to be able to deliver on its, its hawkish plan. But I think they are now beginning to wake up that higher for longer indeed looks like it's going to be the case. And part of that was that the, the CPI came in, you know, a little bit higher than expectations and, and shook the market's confidence that, oh, you know what, um, this may be a harder problem for the Fed to solve, meaning it's going to add 
uh, more strength to the Fed's conviction and resolve to keep hiking and and to keep rates higher for as long as it has to. Adam Taggart's the CEO and founder of Wealthion. Um, follow him at Wealthion, W-E-A-L-T-H-I-O-N, Wealthion.com. Okay, we needed to hear that. Thanks for your thoughts, Adam. Always a pleasure, John. Great talking to you. <laughs> yeah. WGN, more business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. State Farm has filed for another auto insurance rate hike in Illinois. The 6.5% increase would take effect next month and comes after the company posted a $6.7 billion net loss for 2022. It's the most unprofitable year ever for the Bloomington-based insurer. State Farm's auto insurance business drove the numbers down with nearly $13 billion in underwriting losses. Claims and loss adjustment expenses came in at about $45 billion. The company generated about $46 billion in premium revenue. Nearly all of the big four auto insurers lost money insuring vehicles in 2022. Target and Solo Cup have signed leases for warehouses in the southwest suburbs as the companies expand their footprint. According to Cranes, Target has signed a lease for a 1.2 million square foot industrial building under construction at the Third Coast Intermodal Hub in Joliet. The report says it's the biggest industrial lease in the Chicago area in more than two years. Solo Cup has leased a 1 million square foot warehouse in Country Club Hills. The two new warehouses are expected to employ several hundred people. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Here's the business of food with Steve Alexander. Uh-huh, and we're back again today with Ukrainian farmer Nick Gordachuk talking about one year of life under attack by the Russians and we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Nick and I have spoken four or five times over the past year. He farms about 1,500 acres near Kiev. And as we pass the one-year mark, Nick, care to share some thoughts? Well, it's uh, just like it was when it all started a year ago. It's a big catastrophe for the world in general and catastrophe for Ukraine and for our people. And Nick says he's concerned about Russia's ability to wage war for years. Uh, Russia will try to continue to drain Ukraine. And for Russia, it's no problem to mobilize 200,000 people every maybe every five months. And if you remember the war in Chechnya, for example, it was almost for 10 years. And at the heart of the Ukrainian resistance is something we Americans have not had to worry about for over 250 years, living under another country's rule. Nick is old enough to remember what life in Ukraine was like under the Soviets. And I think that's uh, the fact of why we are so strong and for so long, is that we tasted that freedom. And it's very difficult to lose something that you really value. There's been more talk lately from outside Ukraine about trying to force some kind of diplomatic resolution to this. How do you feel about that? Uh, I don't see a diplomatic way out of it. Uh, Unless, I mean, there are many things we don't know. Unless there are some ways how the West, EU and the United States can influence both Ukraine and Russia to sit down around the table to negotiate. Tomorrow, we'll talk about how farming has had to adapt to the war and how farmers have become an ally for soldiers on the front line against Russia. Uh, You see that um, many of farmers, they take their job as a second front because uh, we have to feed the people. And many of farmers now, they say that they're not making profit. Their task is to make sure the business survives. So when you win, 
we can go on and rebuild the economy. Ukrainian farmer Nick Gordachuk. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Gus Noble joins us now, the CEO at Caledonia Senior Living in North Riverside. It's a senior living facility in the suburbs. I'm glad you could join us, Gus. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks, John. How are you? I'm doing real well. This is a subject near and dear to uh, my heart. My family is very involved in my parents' care, and they are in a senior living facility. And I know so many people who are in their 50s and 60s and are dealing with the transition of their parents to a place like yours. I'm sure you can relate, huh? I can indeed. It's one of the most uh, difficult and challenging conversations that any anybody can have with their its family or friends. Their feelings of fear, loss of independence, sense of identity. You know, the confidence can be knocked if you're the the senior, uh, but if you're the loved one, you have a you know you have to grapple with a sense of betrayal and what if I upset my parent or something like that. So it's the hardest thing to do, but it's often the hardest things are the most important things you can do. And uh, like like voting in Chicago, you know, you have to do it early and often. You have to have the, have the conversation as, as early as you can and, and have the patience to let time sink in, let everything sink in and be patient and really listen as well as getting points across. I'm, I'm sorry you've had to go through it. It's, it's such a challenging thing, but do it right. It can be one of the best things. We just have a few minutes here, and you know, uh, I'm sorry that we have to do it too, but it's also our good fortune that my parents are alive, and they have the financial wherewithal to find an accommodation that suits their needs, even if they don't like having to go somewhere like that. Now, you said have the conversation early, have it often, and be a listener. Give me some other tips of how families can best transition for this next stage of their parents' lives. You know, I'd say from a very simple perspective, have the conversation in a quiet place without any distractions or annoyances. Really get to understand what your loved one's values are, what's, what matters to them. Have they thought about end of life or care? You know, where, where are their values taking them? Talk, talk to your loved one about the the whens, the whys, the wheres, the hows. Try and quantify things and build metrics that both you and your loved one can clearly understand and agree on so that when they do happen, any subjectivity is taken out of it. Talk to your siblings and your family. Talk to others and and take advice. Revisit the discussion, I would say, and and approach the discussion with an open mind. Uh, But understanding things like the financial situation, what the options for care are, I would visit multiple locations and vet as much as you can. You know, I'd, I'd accentuate the, the recognize the challenges that I mentioned earlier, but keep accentuating the positive. Tell them what the benefit of living in a community is from a social perspective to seeing family more often to, to living uh, in a way that can be can be managed and healthy. Uh, and as I said, you know, the the uh, the most important thing is to have a discussion as early as you can, because if you don't, here here's what happens. You know, if you give a Scotsman, uh, I'm from Scotland, by the way, but if you give a Scotsman your attention for long enough, he will quote from Robert Burns, and here it comes: <laughs> the best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glaze. So if you leave it too late, 
um, what what can happen is an emergent situation, a sudden yeah. illness or a loss of health means you don't have a choice. You have to act without really preparing. Well, I, I'm, amen to all of that. You know, I also think the mistake we may have made where my parents are, lovely facility, and they're they're going to be okay, but the place I'm at does not transition within the facility to memory care. Um, mm. So we may have to transition them to a place yet again. Um, talk about that. Dementia is one of the cruelest conditions, as as many of us have had to understand. And the the thing that that I, I've looked at recently is how small the proportion of the population in the U.S. is that moves into uh, independent living or a, a continuing care retirement community, sometimes called a life plan community. That means that most of us tend to make a decision about moving into a community much closer to the point of need or in many cases after the point of need. So when when the physical condition requires it, that that's one set of circumstances. But when the uh, the the mental, the memory, the cognitive uh, side of life requires it, it presents an entirely different challenge and one that can can be more difficult to deal with in the long term. If you haven't had the discussion before the onset of any type of memory loss, what it can lead to is a time when, for many people, the agreement to move into care is is no longer the seniors to make. Um, up until the point of memory loss, it's their not just their uh, theirs to make; it's their legal right to make, and, and they should be respected. But many times, beyond that point, you get to as a loved one, as a caregiver, you have to start making decisions that are um, in the best interest. You know, it's from a, you have to put yourself in a position of making strong and loving decisions and really focus on how to help your loved one adjust to care yeah. rather than being involved in the decision up front. And sadly, uh, it may never get to the point where you're given a validation that it was the right decision, but you have to know in your heart that it was, and, and, and uh, that's why it requires some work up front. You've got to learn the lingo. You know, what does a, an activity of daily living mean? What, what what are the various documents that you need to have in place to put affairs in order? You know, there, there are living wills. There are all sorts of documents that you need to have. But they're all things that will support a decision if made over a period of time and with the the involvement discussion of all the parties who love the person that the decision's being made for I think can turn out to be very what good. What you said early in this conversation, talk about it early, talk about it often, resonates throughout all of the levels of care that you are dealing with at Caledonia Senior Living and also Memory Care in North Riverside. We're out of time, but it's good to hear your voice and your thoughts, Gus. Well put. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you, John. All the best to everyone.